You got lots of stuff, man. I know. <laughs> busy morning. It is. Busy morning. Hey, guys. I'm Jordan. Uh, would you flip open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3? We'll start in verse 7. Here's where we're going today. This text is a vision for your life. This is the type of step back and look at your life as a whole and evaluate, are you living it for what matters? And so in some senses, maybe the traditional sense, this is not application heavy. I don't have like the three or five sort of go do this this week applications on this, but I think in another sense, it's incredibly applicable. Because what Paul is going to say is if you miss this, you miss the purpose for your life. There's nothing that can be more applicable than that. Look at uh, verse 13. Actually, let's skip down there to start. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Okay, stop there. We're going to get to what lies ahead. But I want to point out what he just said. But one thing I do. So Paul's been unpacking his life in this chapter. It's been autobiographical information about the way that he has lived, and he goes through and he comes to this conclusion where he says, if there's one thing that I've learned in life, if there's one thing that I could live for that I would want to be true of me, this is it, which is really compelling because don't we want that? Don't you want that type of certainty that it's like this is what my life is about? Or even if you're not looking for that actively, aren't you afraid that you would get to the end of your life and look back on it and just say, I wasted it. I I missed what this is about. Paul is going to give us the one thing to live for. But before we do that, we got to talk about what the one thing isn't, because that's what Paul does. Look back at verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. So the question is, what is the gain that Paul is talking about? And the answer is found in the first part of this chapter. If you think back to what Tony talked about, he talked about Paul's resume. He lists it out. If you look just ahead in this chapter at the first few verses above verse 7, you can see him listing that out, that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he's a Pharisee, that he was zealous for the law and blameless under the law. That was Paul's gain, is that he had lived this life of ambitious goodness, that he had created this foundation of social and moral success. When we look back at Pharisees, I think sometimes in our minds we have this really negative connotation because we know what Jesus had to say to them, but in that moment, that was this highly respectable thing that you would build an entire life around. Paul has just gotten done saying, if anyone had reason for confidence in the flesh, in other words, if anybody should be confident in their own life, that they had lived a quality, good life, it would be him. And and this isn't just his religious life. That is the front foot forward that he's talking about, but this was his entire life had been building around this. Paul, as a kid, would have been thinking and dreaming about this moral life that he was building. He would have been setting goals for the success that he would have to come in his life. He would have dreamed about this life that he was going to build. It's his passion, what he naturally is inclined towards. 
what Tony last week called a resume, what Tim Keller calls our validating performance record. I think that's really helpful. The things that validated his existence. And what he's saying is, is that gain that I had, I now count as loss. So he pulls out a profit, profit loss sheet and he says, those things that I used to count as profit now work against me. It's not just that they're neutral, but he's in the red because of those things. They're actually doing damage to him. What's your validating performance record? What, what's the thing in your life that you feel like, I, I have to have that? Like, this thing has to be true of me. What's the thing that you're trying to justify your existence with to prove that you're worth something? If you don't know off the top of your head, where are your insecurities? Where are your fears? Where do you compare yourself to other people and then try to work really hard to live up to that standard? What are you proud of? What are you passionate about? What do you naturally, without thinking about it, give your life to? Look at the second half of verse eight. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So that word rubbish, translated literally, means feces. It's actually stronger than that. I'm not gonna say it because kids are here, but that honestly would be the best translation, okay? So I, the, I think literally the best translation of what Paul is saying is, my whole life has amounted to, okay, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> and not only does he look back at that and say that that was loss, those things that he used to live for were loss, but he looks at them and he says, these were the very things that I was lifting up to God as worship to him. They were the things that he thought would make God proud of him or that God enjoyed. And so it's like, like Paul is lifting up his hands in worship to Jesus Christ or worship to God, and then he looks at them, and it's a pile of feces in his hand. That is the illustration that Paul is giving. So, all of your success, all of your achievements, your career, your work in school, your goodness, your religiosity, your church background, your righteousness, the things that you're proud of, the things that you spend your time kind of analyzing and thinking about and working toward, everything that you've built your life and your identity on is a heaping pile of crap. That's literally what Paul is saying. Welcome to Salt City Church. <laughs> now, don't misunderstand why this is. The reason why Paul is saying this is not because Christians just value kind of hyper-spiritual stuff and don't care about things in the world. That's, that's actually false. That's not true. And in fact, the things that Paul says this about in his life were his most kind of hyper-spiritual religious things. So it's not just that we reject uh, things that the world cares about and we just do spiritual things over here. He's saying something else. So why is it worthless? What's his explanation for why his life to that point had been worthless? Look at verse 9. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness 
of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You need righteousness before God. All of us need righteousness before God. When you hear righteousness, just think rightness, goodness, total rightness, total goodness. It's what you need. And any type of righteousness that you can produce is holistically inadequate. It's just not even close to meeting the standard of what it would take to stand before God and to be accepted by him. And so you need a righteousness outside of yourself, a goodness beyond you and outside of you. It's what theologians call an alien righteousness, which I actually think is helpful. It's like a righteousness that like drops down from above. It's foreign. It's not from you. You don't even know what it is. It's an alien righteousness. And where is that righteousness coming from? It's coming from the life and death of Jesus Christ. His righteousness counted to you, even though you did nothing to achieve it, is the only way to stand before God. It's the only solution for everything that's broken in the world. And the way you access that is through faith in Christ alone. You stand on his grace and nothing else in your life that you can offer up. This is the heart of Christianity. It is not moralism. It is not what you can do with your life. Even if that's what you were told or what you heard growing up, the heartbeat of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is righteous where you are not and that that can be credited to you, that you can stand on his righteousness and grace and it will be enough where you were not enough. And the way that that's accessed is through faith, which is not kind of some trick to trick God into liking you. It, I, I think sometimes we don't understand why it's faith that accesses that righteousness. Faith is not sort of the one work that works. The, the Expositor's Bible Commentary talks about faith like this. Faith is the opposite of human works. It is the reception of God's work by those who admit the futility of their own efforts to attain righteousness. So why is it through faith that we gain Jesus' righteousness? Not because faith is just kind of this this trick on God, it's because faith is giving up on your own righteousness and accepting his as gift. That's why it's faith. Now, a lot of you in this room know that. There might even be that temptation to, to check out a little bit. Here Jordan is, again, talking about the same stuff again. I talk about this every week, guys. I don't know if you've noticed that. This is, this is what we talk about at Salt City Church. And so there can be this tendency, like, I, I know this. I, I can kind of check out here. This is old news. But the problem is, is that you can know that you're saved by grace through faith and theory, but your life can be you trying to constantly justify yourself by your works. You can know the theology of salvation by grace, but you can stand on your own goodness, your own righteousness, your own track record, your own success, your own whatever. It's different for all of us, but all of us are inclined towards doing that. And you'll find that again in your fears and in your insecurities and your out-of-control emotions where things kind of come up and you get afraid. It's because you were standing on your own righteousness and that was threatened. You know it in theory, but not exercise it in practice. So it's kind of like this. If I told you that I don't care about money, okay, and to prove that to you, 
hold this out of my pocket. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove to you that I don't care about money. <laughs> now, if you're wondering, did I take that from Michael Scott in the office? Yes, that's where I got the idea. <laughs> but stick with me on the illustration, okay? So you can say the words, I don't care about money, and you can act like you don't care by crumpling it up, but it's like still in my pocket. It's fine. I can still use it. I, I care about money, right? You can come to church and you can say, I don't care about my own righteousness. I don't stand on my own success, my own performance. And then you can go into your week. And the rest of your week looks like you actually just kind of holding on to those things that you just said don't matter for your identity. And so here's what needs to happen in your life is you, by the grace of Jesus, need to let go of everything that you used to live for. Not that it's irrelevant or that it doesn't matter in your life, but it doesn't hold you. It doesn't grip you. You can part with it. So your success in life, your religious standing before God, your ability to be good and to do Christian things. Some of you are freaking out a little bit. It's a dollar. It's, it's <laughs> worth it. It's worth it for the illustration. Um, you just got to shred it. Like you, you, you actually have to give up on the old things that you were living for in order to gain Christ. That's what he's saying. Why? Why would we let go of everything that we used to be living for? Why would that be worth it to gain the one thing that matters? All of this has been building to verse 10. Paul has been tr talking about his track record. He's been talking about how he let go of all the things that he used to live for. And in verse 10, he's going to give us the key of why we would let go of these things. So verse 10, it starts with that. You can, you can think so that. So it's connecting it to everything that he's been saying. He's gotten rid of all of his old life, the foundation that he used to live for, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The end all, be all of life is knowing Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what your life is about. That's what it's for. That is the only marker by which you can stand. It's the only foundation of your life. Your life is not kind of a scales where you're adding things to the positive side to outweigh the negative. It's not a trophy collection or a souvenir collection of all the good things you've done or all the places you've been, the interesting things you've done. It's do you know Jesus Christ? Everything rises and falls on that. He says it in verse 8, that he loses all things because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Verse 13 is where he says he lives for one thing, and then he follows it up with verse 14. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's just another way of saying over and over and over again, you need to know Christ. John Piper said this, 
quote that's been really helpful in my life. You don't have to know a lot of things for the life or for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and die for them. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room, the best educated person in the room, the best dressed person in the room, the most successful person in the room, the most religious person in the room, the most Bible reading person in the room. You need to know Christ. He is what life is about. I told you a couple weeks ago that uh, I had the chance to go golfing with a friend of mine at this like fancy golf course. And I uh, drove up to the course and saw this four members only sign. And then I drove right past it because I knew my friend, right? Now I want you to imagine that there were some like guards at this gate and I rolled up and they were like, what are you doing here? And I was like, uh, I played high school golf, so I'm going to need you to let me in. I'm rocking a golf polo. I don't know if you see this, but I'm clearly a golfer. I need you to let me in. Every reason that I could give them would make them less inclined to let me in, except for one reason. Three words. I know Ben. I know Ben. The kingdom of Jesus, there's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. Three words. I know Jesus. That's it. That's what it is to come into his kingdom. Now, I think we miss the potency of this because we misunderstand what knowing Christ means. When we think about knowing him, we tend to think about abstract knowledge. You tend to think about theology. So we think about knowledge as like something you can regurgitate on a test, right? But this is different. So when you do a word study on that word knowing Christ, here's what you come up with. Here's a definition I found. Unctional or working knowledge gleaned from firsthand experience. Connecting theory to application. Application knowledge gained in a direct relationship. So this is personal knowledge. It isn't just abstract facts about someone. It's not abstract theological facts about God. It's actually experientially knowing him. So if I told you that I knew LeBron James you would say, what, that's amazing, like, how did you meet LeBron? And I would say, yeah, yeah, I know LeBron James. He's, he's 6'9", 250 pounds, he's 36 years old. Cool, when, like, when did you meet LeBron? No, 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 I haven't met LeBron. He plays for the Los Angeles Lakers. He won a championship with them, the whole Cleveland thing, like Cleveland, this one's for you. LeBron James, right? I don't know LeBron. I know facts about LeBron. If you're able to regurgitate God is a trinity and he saves you by grace through faith, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know God. You know about him, do you know him? Have you experienced him? Do you walk with him personally daily? Do you, do you know what it's like to read the scripture and to be cut 
to the heart by him and to hear him by his spirit speaking to you about your life and your sin and encouraging you. You know what it's like to stand out under the stars and and look up and see like the magnificence of God's creation and to just be stunned at him and to see him as this transcendent God who also knows you personally and intimately to walk with him through life. And he gives us a little definition of what it means to know God in verse 10. says that we should share in the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So that knowing God means sharing in the power of his resurrection. That's maybe what we would have expected. That's encouraging, right? That we get to share in the, this new life that Jesus had, that because Jesus rose from the dead, we too can spiritually raise from the dead. And sin doesn't have the same hold on you that it used to. You can say no to things that you didn't used to be able to say no to because you have the power of the resurrected Jesus living in you by his spirit. That's part of what it means to know Christ. But unless we were to think that because we have the power of the resurrection, Nothing is really hard anymore. We don't have to go through the difficult process of this life. He says this, and may share in his sufferings. The word share means fellowship, to commune in the sufferings of Jesus. It's like he's saying, knowing Jesus is so worth it that you would gladly accept any sufferings that come your way so that you can know Jesus and rely on him a little bit more. And then it says, becoming like him in his death. Now, in what way would we become like him in his death? Not in the sacrificing for the world way. It's not the same atoning way that Jesus died. So what does this mean? Well, I think it's something similar to when Jesus says, whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will find it in him. That like Jesus died to his own self-interested life for the benefit of others, that if you're willing to give up what you used to live for, you can find him. If you try and hold on to your life, it's going to fall through your fingers. But if you open it up and give it to him, you will find true life in him. Death to the old self, the old way of life, and new life in him. Because we take the same route to heaven that Jesus did. Jesus first died, and then he was glorified. He had to be buried in the ground before he could be raised from the dead. We, too, have to bury our old life to be raised to new life in him. So if the way into knowing Christ is faith, verse 9, then how do you experience the fullness of knowing him? How do you you live into that knowledge of him? Effort. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Not that I have already obtained what I'm talking about, not that I'm perfect, but I press on. Paul, in the next verse, We'll talk about straining to know God. It's this raw, unbridled effort to live the Christian life. Now, that's fascinating. 
Because we just got done saying that there's nothing that you can contribute to your salvation. There's nothing you can achieve or earn, none of your own righteousness that you can stand on. And so why is he here now talking about effort? Isn't that a contradiction? Well, no, not at all. Christianity is not anti-effort. It's anti-legalism. And those two things are not even close to the same thing. Look at what he says. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you see the order there? Christ Jesus makes you his own so you press on. You don't press on in order that Jesus will make you his own. You're not striving to become righteous so that you can earn an identity with him. You're striving because you already are righteous. You strive into what is already true of you in Christ. Both false religion and authentic Christianity require a tremendous amount of effort. It's just that one is striving for an identity, the other is striving out of an identity. And that makes all the difference in the world. If you know Christ, are you striving to live in that identity? Are you working hard to live out that identity in your life? Is it the singular ambition of your life? So we just got done with the Olympics. Sad, I'm gonna miss it, but we got more coming soon. Winter Olympics, guys, it's coming. Um, Just me and I watched this this documentary leading up to the Olympics on Olympic uh, gymnasts and what they go through to get to the point where they can make the Olympic team. And it's crazy. I mean, they're, they're starting when they're like two years old, three years old. As they get a little bit older, they're in the gym from nine to five every day. Their bodies are just like beaten down. They're, they're doing gymnastics on broken bones. It's, their regiment is crazy. Everything they eat, everything that they think about, everything that they do, working towards that. There was one family that moved across the country shortly before the Olympic trials to try to get a new coach to get their kid into the Olympics. So it's not even just them, but it's like that whole family is consumed with that. And when you look at that from the outside, it's confusing. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, why would you do that? But to them, it's completely normal because it's worth it for the goal. They want to be an Olympian. And there's not a single cost that really even registers to them for the ultimate gain of being able to be an Olympian. And it doesn't make sense from the outside, but it makes sense to them. Now, it does get a little crazy and at times sad when it's something like that. But we can learn from that. That single-minded ambition. How would your ambition for knowing Christ compare to an Olympic athlete's? Like, would someone from the outside look at your life and think it's as crazy as we do looking in at that training regiment? Or would it look kind of normal, kind of like everyone else? Has Jesus become the singular ambition of your life? Have you applied the same effort, the same intentionality, the same creativity to attaining the call of God in your life that you've applied to other ambitions like your career or school or your friendships or whatever that thing is, your hobbies in your life? Have you applied that ambition? I've had people ask me before, 
And I've asked this question of myself, why am I not more godly? And there's a few different answers to that question. But one of them is, you're probably just not trying hard enough, honestly. Like there's more work that you can do in your faith to maintain the upward call of Christ in your life. Jesus hasn't become the singular ambition of your life. Now, Paul gives a little bit of an additional, not disclaimer, but a helpful word with that hard call towards effort. Look at verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Let those of us that are mature think this way. So he's talking to the mature, and he's saying, hey, you need to hear this call. But he's also saying, some of you think otherwise. You're not mature yet, and God will reveal that to you in time. And so there, there are degrees of maturity, and there's a different way that you hear this difficult call from Paul. So when we were talking about this at our elder meeting, um, Rob Wassenaar was talking about this, and Rob was a professional baseball player. Okay, I'm name dropping Rob. You're welcome, Rob. He doesn't, yeah, anyway. Uh, Rob was a professional baseball player, but he's also coached third grade baseball. And he talked about the differences between the two. And when he was coaching third grade baseball, there's people out in left field, like, picking weeds. There was a kid that, as a ball was hit towards him, he didn't see it because he was dancing. He was just out dancing in right field. So that's third grade baseball. And you know what? That's understandable, and in some senses, the norm of third grade baseball. Nobody's really getting on those kids for that. But if you're a professional baseball player, and you miss a pop fly because you were dancing in right field someone's going to have a conversation with you about your life. And that, that's, that's right and that's good. Here's what I'm saying. If you are a mature Christian, if you've known Jesus for a long time, but you don't have consistent rhythms of pursuing him, if you're not repenting of sin and turning from it, if you're not growing in righteousness, if you're not giving effort to attain godliness, there's a conversation that needs to be had. You're not immature anymore. You're mature. Live like it. But... If you're new to the faith, don't feel condemnation from this word. You stand on the righteousness of Christ, and nothing can take you from that righteousness. And by the way, if you're mature, that's also true of you. I didn't want to make that sound like that's not true. That's true for all of us. But in particular, if you're new, don't be discouraged. Yeah, you're immature. That's the phase in life that you're in. God will grow you. Wait on him. Bask in the goodness of knowing Jesus. Oh my. Bask in the goodness of knowing Jesus, and he will transform your life through his grace. Can I just recommend a simple practical step for kind of both of you, if you feel like you're mature or immature in your faith? Something that's been really helpful for me in my life is I, I dreamed about what I wanted my life to become in Christ. And I made a list of 10 things that I want to be true of me at the end of my life based on the Sermon on the Mount and the fruit of the Spirit. And I tr I've got a note card where those things are written out and every day I try to pray through those things. And I just figure if I pray towards that for the rest of my life, Jesus is gonna change that in me. He'll turn me into that by his grace 
And because I'm praying about it, it's on my mind more. I'm quicker to repent when I see that sin in my life. It helps me. So maybe think about doing that. And if you spend the next, God willing, 60 years of your life praying towards a few goals of being like Christ, won't he answer that prayer in your life? Won't he love answering that? All right, so to finish this out, let me summarize. This whole section at the start of chapter three started with rejoice in the Lord. Tony taught us that joy is not found in yourself, it's found outside of you. And Paul proves that by listing his resume and saying he didn't really find joy. It all amounted to nothing. And verse 7 says that joy is found in throwing away the things that you used to stand on or used to try to find joy in and counting them as rubbish so that you may gain Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. How do you gain Christ? Not by your works or your righteousness, but by faith in him. And once you have gained Christ, what do you do? You strive to experience the knowledge of Christ in your daily life. You fight and claw for joy. And ultimately, so that, in verse 11, that we may attain the resurrection from the dead by any means possible. Now, he mentions resurrection twice. The first time he's talking about resurrected power of Jesus in your life now to fight and kill sin. The second time he talks about the resurrection from the dead. He's talking about that ultimate day of resurrection where we will put on new bodies just like Jesus did and we will meet Jesus face to face. And the reward of your effort will not ultimately be the gifts that Jesus gives you on that day or how epic heaven is. The reward of your efforts will be knowing Jesus Christ himself. You will gain Christ. And there's so much to gain in him that you will spend the rest of eternity growing in knowledge of him. And every second and every day, you will grow into joy as you discover more of the goodness of Jesus forever. And he will never run out because he is infinite. And so forever, you will grow into his goodness and joy in your new resurrected body, in your new resurrected life in him. That is worth any effort that you could put in in this life. And it's certainly worth getting rid of all lesser ambitions for that singular ambition of knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I pray that you would become just the ambition of this church. That we would pursue you above anything else. And, and Jesus, help us. We, we get caught up in trying to work for you, to work for our righteousness. And we're, we can't do it. We can't offer you anything. So that's not why we work, God. And we just confess that. There's, there's nothing we can do to achieve a standing before you. It's only by your grace, it's only by your goodness that we can know you. And so thank you, Jesus, for making a way for us to know you. And God, we want to know you more. 
We don't want to pursue lesser things. We don't want to live for stuff that doesn't matter. We want to we live in you and for you, but we're really bad at that, and so Jesus, forgive us. <laughs> forgive us when we don't live like that, but help us to live differently in you, striving for the worthy call of knowing you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.